So it's a really corrupt system. It's a very corrupt system. And you see in some countries pushback against that. Certain Latin American countries, there's been pushes by the government to, for example, um, privatise water, the most basic service of all. And sometimes it's been successful. In many places it has not. So there is definitely a pushback. I would wish there'd be far more pushback in places like the UK and Australia, for that matter, against these policies. Hello and welcome to another episode of Chatter, a podcast from The Gist, with me, Josh Hamilton. Anthony Lowenstein, author of Disaster Capitalism, Making a Killing Out of a Catastrophe, was my guest on today's show. Anthony is an Australian journalist who has spent years visiting and reporting on places all around the world where disaster capitalism has run rampant. Everywhere from Papua New Guinea and Haiti to the UK and his own country, Australia, who became the first country to completely outsource their immigration department. We covered the impacts of disaster capitalism, immigration, how communities have resisted the immense power of multinational corporations, and much, much more. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. So here's Anthony Lowenstein. Anthony, thank you very much for doing this. It's an absolute pleasure to have you all the way from Australia. Thanks for having me. Yes, definitely one of the times that I would get to get to talk to people from all around the world who actually have time to talk to me. It's great. <laughs> I'm pretty sure half the interviews I've got this year have, have, have only been possible because of COVID. Because <laughs> of COVID, yeah. Well, I've, I'm in Australia, but um, I've also got two young kids, so... Obviously, I do go out, but uh, yeah, a bit less than I did did before kids. So yes, oh, I'm happy to be here. So yeah, uh, I wanted to talk to you about your book, Dis- um, Disaster Capitalism, Making Killing Out of a Catastrophe. I got it here. It was very... In hard copy, I can see. Yeah. Um, I'm impressed with that. Well, it's in paperback too. It came out in paperback a year after that, but no, I mean, uh, the hardback one sold very well, but yeah, I'm happy to see it. Well, no, I came across it first, uh, would have been the start of last year i think i picked it up somewhere um while i was writing my my book brexit the establishment civil war um and the sort of end of it is very much about uh neoliberalism and disaster capitalism uh-huh. and sort of how i think they're going to take advantage of brexit so it was a very sort of prescient yeah. book but I, I i admittedly only read the parts on um britain and america then i didn't like i that. didn't go too deep um because i was i was coming to the end of, of writing my book and it was very heavy piece but i'm glad i, I went back and, and now i looked at it again because it was a really really interesting read um thank you so so yeah the let's just like dive into the questions um one of the things that the the, the overarching theme of your book and of of, of some other writing as well uh, from people like naomi klein is this idea that that disaster capitalism is kind of driven by the for profit above of, above everything else just everything is for profit whether that's people's healthcare whether that's detention prisons security every single part of a disaster can be exploited for people to profit do you think that's one that is sort of like that that motive for profit is sort of built into our society is that like something that we 
have created for ourselves or is that sort of something that's that that, that kind of greed and, and destruction is part of human nature do you think that's that's just humanity or do you think it's it's socially constructed or where do you lie on that scale i think sometimes it's all the above i think it depends but look when people often talk about this issue it's definitely justified to say that there are many examples for hundreds of years of massive they weren't called multinational companies back then that companies that to some extent have massive influence and power often run by then colonial powers, particularly the UK and elsewhere, and their influence was global and they were making an absolute fortune and through the exploitation of usually black or brown people in the process. Now, what I talk about in disaster capitalism, Naomi Klein has talked about in her book, The Shock Doctrine and other work since, about climate change particularly, that's obviously one of her focus these days, which is a very important issue, is... The last 40 years, I think, has seen a shift. Now, you can argue with justification that capitalism is obviously making profit, but there's capitalism and there's hyper-capitalism to me. There's this sense of person X runs a bar, runs a cafe. He or she might want to make a profit. That doesn't make them an evil, bad person. You know, they want to make profit maybe to support their family or whatever. That, to me, is not inherently bad unless, you know, assuming they don't exploit people in the process. I've got no problem with that at all. And that happens in multiple countries around the world. What has changed, though, particularly since the 80s because of Reagan in the US and Thatcher in the UK, is a shared belief that, A, the role of the state should massively decrease. Regulation should be cut, so-called red tape should be cut, much less support for a so-called safety net. The US, of course, is far worse than the UK, and the US has got huge problems about these issues in the last 10 years, as I talk about in my more recent book about the drug war. But... Nonetheless, compared to the US, the UK is doing relatively well. I mean, I say that with hesitation. <laughs> um, in terms of a safety net, there is a health system. It's not perfect. I'm not, the NHS is not perfect. But it's way better than what happens in the US. I mean, this is not even a comparison. And I live in Australia and I'm from Australia and we have a similar system to the NHS here. Not perfect, but a pretty good public health care system. But what's happened in the last 40 years is a, a, a reduction in power of the state but also a belief that corporations, often the mates of those in power, have the right to make unbelievably insane profits. Well, I don't think someone who is aiming to do that, whether it's a company like Serco or Google or Facebook or a range of other companies, uh, everyone who works for them are inherently evil. I meet a lot of people in my work over the years who are often very low down in the food chain who work for some of these companies, and some of them do some bad shit. I'm not defending that for a second. But they're not the problem, to be honest. They're not the issue. It's like saying in the US the problem is Trump. The problem is not Trump. Yes, Trump is terrible and a disaster and outrageous and racist and I'm hoping he gets beaten by an incredibly average candidate, Joe Biden, <laughs> uh, in November. Fingers the crossed. Ideas of- yeah, fingers crossed. I mean, it's hard to sort of feel much optimism or sort of say hope for Joe Biden only because he's a deeply uninspiring man. But no one can argue with credibility that there's no difference between him and Trump. There is a difference. There is a difference. There is a difference. Um, I'm talking more about the Democratic versus Republican Party. The Republican Party, as Chomsky says, is the most extreme party in history. And I say that because, well, he says that because of their attitude towards climate change, particularly in nuclear weapons. That's his particular major focus. 
So when you say, is there a human nature to make profit? Look, there's stories as, as far back as humanity, right, of people who are aiming to make money or shaft other people. Yes, but the scale of it and the um, amount of money we're talking about is off the chart. I mean, some listeners might be aware that during this year's pandemic, most people, of course, have lost their job. Jeff Bezos, the American founder of Amazon's profit, has gone through the roof. And he's done that principally, as some people I'm sure will be aware, of union busting, not paying enough, not treating his workers with respect. Many workers got COVID who worked for his warehouses, huge amounts of abuses within those warehouses. You know, the fact that people are excited about the fact that they can go online now and order a book and it arrives maybe in a day, depends where you are in the world, of course, that gets delivered by a person. You know, this idea somehow everything is, I think there's still a, I think there is a belief mistakenly that everything is automated. It's not. That may well happen at some point in the future and you order something and it comes from some magical warehouse and gets dropped in your lap, you know, from a drone above your house. Okay, maybe putting aside the fact that many people will be out of a job who used to have one, but that reality does not exist today, right? So I think the level of hyper profit and hyper exploitation is unprecedented. And I think the fact that the majority of Western governments, I mean, we can talk about the world as a whole, but let's talk about the West for a second. Western governments meaning, I guess I'm focusing mostly on US, UK, although Europe is a bit of a mixed bag, are generally content with corporations operating off the leash. Corporations as in the largest corporations. And that's partly about who's friends with whom, who's benefiting, who's socialising. I mean, just finally in the UK, I think it is relevant that the UK in the last 10 years has basically been run by an old boys club. I'm aware Theresa May was Prime Minister. She's a woman. I get that. But it's a similar kind of environment. They grew up in a similar space. Not her, not her so much, although David Cameron did, Boris Johnson did. Well, I mean, she did. And, she did go to Oxbridge, and she was in the 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 young conservatives at Oxbridge, or I kind of Oxford or Cambridge, and then yes. rubbed, rubbed shoulders with a whole bunch of people who then ended up on her front bench. So it's not like like she's it is. Part of, you know she can't really claim to be you know part of the oppressed minority or, or absolutely she's not exactly she's coming from yeah from a privileged place. Yes, indeed, and I think that's obviously quite similar with. The Trump administration, that's quite similar with the potential Biden administration, to be honest, with some at least who are likely to be in his administration. Mm. And, you know, one of the things that's been really frustrating for me in the last 10 years, and it's got even worse since Trump became president four years ago, is the rose-coloured glasses that people now have towards someone like Obama. Mm. Um, and I say that because, yes, he's better than Trump, but on a lot of issues that I've written about and care about, he was pretty average. He deported, he was labelled the deporter-in-chief. He totally mismanaged the so-called financial crisis in 2008-2009 by essentially giving far too much support to the companies that caused the problem in the first place. He accelerated the drone war. All these kind of things that apparently it's okay for many progressives to like when Obama does it. We trust him. He's the good guy, so the line goes. And I mention that in the context of corporations because this finally and definitely finally this time is that during the first campaign he ran in 2007, 
he openly talked during the campaign about the fact that George W. Bush, post 9-11, the war on terror, etc., had absolutely enriched corporations to an nth degree. And he said openly, we're going to stop this crazy contracting that's allowing failed companies to keep on getting more work. In other words, failure is not an impediment to more contract, which is insane. Obama gets in and nothing changes. Nothing changes. Now, why is that? It's complex. I discuss it in the book and we can discuss it later if you like. I guess the point is that, yes, we need to hope that better politicians come up, but it's not simply enough to hope and presume, even if, say, Jeremy Corbyn had won in the UK and someone I, of course, I'm not British so I can't vote for him, but I think on some of these issues he would have tried to make changes, but he still would have faced massive headwinds against people who are pushing for the status quo. Hmm. Why is it, do you think, that that, that privatisation, because this is often something I've wondered about, um, is that that privatisation that comes in in the form of, of these no-bid contracts or perhaps where where companies have, have done just a horrendous, horrendous job, they've not fulfilled any of the targets they wanted to hit, they've gone way over budget, they've like abused people, committed like serious crimes in, in some cases, either civil or criminal or both. And yet they, they continue to be awarded these, these, these contracts. Like, why, why is it that, that we, we just haven't sort of gone, well, hang on a second, guys. Like, like you know, you, you said you were going to dig this hole and you've just left us with a big, like, pile of dirt. Like, you know, if, if, a bill, if, 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 you, if you went to a builder and said, right, okay, we need you to build this house, and you came back and maybe some of the stuff was there and the thing was half assembled, you wouldn't go, right, okay, we got the next project for you. <laughs> no, but like, Absolutely. Where's the you logic? Why, 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 why? I mean, the question is why. Why the hell is this happening? Well, yeah. I think there's a few reasons, and they're not good. One, this is basically bipartisan. It doesn't really matter that much who's in charge of Britain, America, or Australia, or other countries for that matter. Yes, as I said, I'm not saying Trump is the same as Biden. They're different. Or I'm not saying that, for example, Jeremy Corbyn would, would have been the same to Boris Johnson. That, would have, that was actually a very rare case of very different political styles and policies. But in general, there's bipartisanship. So it doesn't make a big difference, for example, in the UK to have massive outsourcing of detention centres to private corporations, Serco, G4S and others, who have a record, not just in the UK but around the world, of not just failure but injuring people, sexually abusing people. And, you know, I often asked this question years ago. I feature it in my book, Disaster Capitalism, I think, although you've read it more recently than me, but basically a very former Serco manager who was a bit of a whistleblower. And he was a believer and he became a, I guess you could say, a critic. He was quite disillusioned with what he ended up doing. For those who don't know, Australia is the only country in the world to have outsourced all its immigration attention to the private sector. I mean, ultimately, a decision is made if a person enters the country is made by the government, not by a private corporation, but the management of those facilities is is done by corporations. And onshore, that's done by Serco. And just as an aside, the current debate in the UK about potentially sending refugees to offshore sites, Mm. to sending them to to remote places in the hope that that's going to deter them. That is exactly the Australian model. Australia has been shamefully, and for many of us who are opposed to it, embarrassingly so, 
This is where Australia has led for 20 years. Australia has regularly, for years and to this day, has asylum seekers stuck on Pacific Islands indefinitely. People have been killed, people have been abused. It is an unbelievably horrific environment. And the UK, from what we read, is thinking of moving down the same path. And you can be rest assured that if the UK does that, they're unlikely to be running those facilities themselves. You can be almost certain that the G4Ss and Circos and others are already chomping at the bit to try to get the contracts to run Facility X, wherever it may be. So this Circo manager from years ago, just to go back to that briefly, sort of said the way this system has been done is twofold. One, that neither major sides of politics, he was talking about Australia and the UK, although the US is quite similar, neither major sides of politics increasingly wants to manage problem areas anymore, prisons, detention centres and others. So it's much easier to give it to the private sector, A. B, something goes wrong, it's not our fault, blame the company. So there's no accountability. Thirdly, it's often the mates of those in power, and that doesn't make much of a difference which side's actually in power. And fourthly, and perhaps most worryingly, ultimately when it comes to, he was talking about immigration detention, there actually aren't many companies that can do these jobs. In other words, if the state chooses, for whatever reason, to not do it, the companies themselves know If I don't get this contract, I'll probably get the next one. In other words, yes, in Australia, for example, G4S, one of the world's largest security companies, was literally involved in killing people, refugees, up in Papua New Guinea, the country closest to us in the north. And you'd think that would have impacted them getting more work. You'd be wrong. Um, now, I'm not saying G4S was murdering hundreds of people. I don't want to exaggerate that, but they were complicit in the death of at least one person, in fact, probably far more. And it's had pretty much no impact on G4S getting work around the world. And again, it goes to the point that these companies have become so big, so unregulated, so multinational that they can operate fairly freely across borders with little regulation and in their home countries and Serco and G4S are both based in the UK, neither major side of politics in that country, Labour or the Tories, have done much to change that problem. So yes, now and then both of those companies and others have been involved in a scandal. I recall during the Olympic Games in London a few years ago, some of these companies didn't deliver properly. Okay, That was embarrassing. No one was killed in that situation, I might add. So, I mean, I guess that's better. But it's had no impact. I mean, it had a short-term impact. And the the government says all the time, oh, you know, this company's not going to bid any, you know, can't get any more contracts for a while. You think that lasted? It doesn't last. And finally, finally, what we saw in Australia, and I wrote about this in the book, is these companies also romance politicians. Um, I don't mean in a... (laughs) hopefully in a sexual sense, as far as I know. I mean they wine and they wine and dine them. In Australia's case, they are, they are saying to politicians, we'll fly you over to the UK, and Australia is obviously very far away from the UK. It's a nice trip on the other side of the world to look at our facilities and, of course, the politicians are going to have, you know, nice meals, etc. So that happens a lot. Happens in the US too. Mm-hmm. Happens in the so UK. There's, and the UK. <laughs> yeah. Totally. A lot of, as we say, a lot of schmoozing, a lot of, you know, um, 
I'm not saying it's all about alcohol because some people won't drink, but, you know, a lot of whining and dining. No. So it's a really corrupt system. It's a very corrupt system. And you see in some countries pushback against that. Certain Latin American countries, there's been pushes by the government to, for example, um, privatise water, the most basic service of all. And sometimes it's been successful. In many places it has not. So there is definitely a pushback. I would wish there'd be far more pushback in places like the UK and Australia for that matter against these policies. Um, I guess people are consumed by other issues, and I understand that, not least during a year with a global pandemic, but this issue has been around for decades. Mm. Why is it you think that, that, that you mentioned that the com- that uh, both parties, say Labour or the Conservatives or, or whatever country you happen to be in, both sides of the aisle, don't want to, they don't want to manage a controversial issue like immigration. Like, why do you think that is? Is it just like the kind of PR style of politics that we have is just like anything controversial just gets left in the box? Well, yes. The short answer is yes. (laughs) The slightly longer answer is that it's very much to me smells of a management firm saying, what do you gain by running these facilities? In other words, you and I might say, an accountable facility, <laughs> not killing people, treating people with humanity, you know, mm. good stuff like that. But governments of mostly both stripes say this is only going to cause us headaches. People are going to complain. There's going to be riots. And, of course, the broader question is happening in Australia, US, the UK. Of course, America's immigration system is on a whole different level of awfulness not least during Trump, although it was pretty bad during Obama, to be honest, but it's definitely way accelerated to a level of hideousness under Trump. And I think it would just go back to awful under Biden as opposed to hideousness, frankly, that... I always thought that the reason Obama got away with deporting people was because uh, because he's black, basically. basically. I, I just, like, that he kind of got the pass because they were like, oh, you know, he wouldn't deport people was just the attitude that people sort of seemed to have. Well, I think, look, whether that was the reason, who knows, but I do think there was also, frankly, a lack of a lot of rigorous journalism at that time. Now, in the last years, there's been some really good American journos who have covered the immigration issue well. I mean, it's obviously been a centrepiece of the Trump movement, so as it should be, but during the Obama years, there simply wasn't as much reporting about this, and that was part of the reasons, frankly, that I wanted to... Um, do some of the reporting I've done in the last decade, not least around um, some of the countries that Obama has sent people back to, including Honduras, which is not in disaster capitalism, but is in my more recent book, Pills, Powder and Smoke About Drugs. But look, Josh, I think it's also a sense that governments feel they can get away with it, get away with it, meaning they can get away with outsourcing it. There's virtually there's little public outcry. There's little accountability, and the policy is increasingly, and this is something that has worried me for a long time, and I see it getting worse this century as climate change accelerates. The brutality against refugees is only going at the moment to me in one direction, which is worse. And frankly, yes, governments have no particular problem doing it themselves, but why not get a corporation involved as well? They're happy to do it. In other words, the decision, for example, if the UK 
sends refugees offshore is not likely to be made by a corporation. Although, as I said, you can be rest assured, corporation X, Y, or Z is almost certainly lobbying for potential contracts. So I'm not saying there's no evidence that Australia, for example, has outsourced all its detention centres to a private company that was, you know, company X pointing a gun at a prime minister here in Australia and saying, do it. No, but there was a lot of lobbying in Australia years ago and that's now increasingly become the global model. You wouldn't think Australia would lead on this, but God help us, they are. There was a lot of pressure from American private prison companies to follow the American lead. And Australia took that lead in many states and federally, the, the lead being increasingly privatising prisons and immigration detention centres. And the UK has clearly followed and the idea of them sending refugees offshore, which I might add the EU has been doing now for years. The EU, wow, I mean, where to start with the EU? Let's not get into that now. But in short, the EU also I think is very much moving towards a much more militarised, privatised environment. You can't necessarily build a wall around the EU in a literal sense, although many states have put up literal walls and fences. That's only going to get worse. And frankly, if pandemics keep on happening or if climate change worsens, which clearly it will, one of the things that really worries me this century is where... Um, I can very much see, apart from obviously climate refugees, the brutality that many people in our societies will tolerate against those kinds of refugees, I fear is only going to increase. I don't think it's far away before major states use drones and other military equipment to shoot refugees at borders or in the seas. We're not far away from that to me at all. And I fear it would not get majority support, but it would get enough support. I don't think we're far away from that at all. That's, that's a scary thought. Yeah, that is a scary thought. I mean, I want to come back to, to, to disaster capitalism, but like I was curious while I was reading your book, especially when you were talking about um, Greece and uh, the incoming refugees from, from Syria, as to it's, it's okay, right, this, this might be like the most like controversial question that you, you, I'm going to ask you, but like how much control do you think a nation should have over like their borders as to how many people can come in? Because I, I, I cannot sympathize enough with the plight of the people who think it's that their lives are so have been so thrown into just chaos and destroyed that they think that taking a dinghy across the Mediterranean is the best option. Like I can't even fathom the level of desperation that you need to get to that point. Like if someone said to me, Josh, you know, you got to go and take a dinghy across the Irish Sea, which is like a third of the distance. Like, and and I would just be like, have you lost your mind? Like there, there, there cannot be, a, that cannot be the best option. But at the same time, it's obviously causing um, a lot of problems in, in Greece and in a lot of countries where where they, they just, they can't deal with that, that influx of people. Um, especially at times of austerity. Um, and hmm. actually, Brett, Brett Weinstein um, raised this point that he said that it's it's something that, that humans have to be so careful for that when you get periods of, of austerity, it's so not natural, but there's something in, in our, our, our evolution that, that sometimes it just, we just, 
pick on those weaker than us. And we pick on the, on the weakest in our communities or in our populations or in our countries or, you know, whatever scale you want to put it at. And and that's, I think, quite clearly what's happening in, in Greece in, in that, you know, the you've had this influx of, of, of people fleeing a war that, that Europe is complicit in. in probably, I don't know, I'm, I'm not well versed enough in, in saying that they started it, but uh, they're definitely continuing it. Um, so that like we have some responsibility but but how much yeah like how how do you balance those two things in in your mind well with difficulty (laughs) is the short answer um in greece as i explain in the book is a very on one level unique case in europe where greece economically was strangled by the eu led by germany they were happy to do that Mm -hmm. um just led by Angela Merkel, of course, um, the effect of that in Greece itself was utter economic devastation, social dislocation, unsurprisingly the rise of the far right, Golden Dawn, that just this week, some listeners will be aware, was finally found guilty after an absurdly long trial in Greece of being a criminal organisation, many of its leaders. I mean, politically speaking these days, they are much less powerful than that they no longer have seats in parliament. I spent some time with them. For listeners who don't know briefly, Golden Dawn is a neo-Nazi party. It was, until recently, the third biggest party in the Greek parliament. So you'd like to think a fringe movement, but actually not. A bit more of a fringe movement now, but uh, spending time with them. they They were seriously threatening to take quite a large portion of the vote at one point. Indeed, and I have to say, as a journalist, and I'm even though I'm atheist, I'm Jewish. So, being a Jewish journalist, spending time with neo Nazis was uh, an experience. Wow! Okay. Not that I basically feared for my life or anything. I didn't. I mean, I'm not religious at all. I mean, I'm atheist, but I am Jewish, and my name is, you know, quite Jewish. So, anyway, that yeah, I wasn't scared per se, but yeah, it was. Um, hmm. And what what actually worried me about Golden Dawn, the people, some of whom I met, was. And, of course, I didn't meet so much the head kickers, the guys who are the ones who literally go around the streets bashing up, mostly migrants. The so-called leaders are not stupid. This is actually the danger that I'm not saying they're geniuses. I'm not saying that either. But the so-called I met one of the so-called intellectuals of the party. Um, and, again, the party has fallen into a bit of disrepute in the last few years. But this guy was not dumb. He wasn't just a, a you know head kicking thug. This is the danger of people like that or Marine Le Pen in France. These people are not stupid. It is a mistake for those of us on the left to say, a anybody who supports them. A Marine Le Pen is hardly a fringe movement. She has the potential of becoming leader of France um, in the next election. I hope, of course, she doesn't. But. People like that who years ago were on the fringes are no longer on the fringes. They're just not. And the refugee issue you talked about before is deeply relevant to this question because what I fear is that elements of the right or the far right are much, much better at harnessing the hatred than the left is of arguing a more humane policy. Now, obviously, I'm generalising and obviously it depends what you mean by the left. There's left <laughs> and there's further left. Mm. Um my view is that there should be much, much looser immigration restrictions on most countries. Um, it's not a policy that's going to happen anytime soon. I fear it's going in the opposite direction. I mean, Marine Le Pen and people like that have a very clear policy. In fact, they're what I would call much smarter far-right politicians because they do argue, 
unlike, for example, the far right of the Republican Party in the US, Marine Le Pen does believe in a social safety net. She does believe in healthcare for people. Of course, her kinds of people, white people, not brown or Muslims or blacks. Mm. But there is a belief in that. And in fact, there's also people on the right who are much cleverer. When I say clever, I don't mean because I admire them. I'm saying clever <laughs> in terms of harnessing political power. Just to make that very clear. Well, the I people think with you, the other you've, got, you've got to give the devil his due. Yes. And the idea that, you know, traditionally speaking, the right opposed action on climate change. Either thought climate change was bullshit or they were big supporters of fossil fuels. And in many cases, like the Republican Party in the US, we see that. I mean, they're utterly enthralled to that. Um, and the Liberal Party here in Australia, Liberal Party is the equivalent of a Tory party. It's a bit confusing, but they're called Liberals, even though they're conservative. Anyway, a bit strange for outsiders. But the cleverer far right in Europe actually embrace action on climate change. What I mean by that is they say, we accept climate change is real. It's happening. We have to protect the environment. As the National Socialist said, during the Nazi period back in the 30s in Germany. And then what's their solution to that? Well, their solution is to, yes, to partly embrace renewables, but to basically massively tighten up immigration restrictions. The idea being we need to protect our own kind of people. High walls, high borders, more surveillance, all that kind of mentality. Now, whether that kind of far-right so-called action on climate change, because although I'm not saying Marine Le Pen is is as extreme as the Christchurch killer. And people will remember there was a massacre in New Zealand last year that killed 50 people. Mm -hmm. And the manifesto of that man um, is, he was an Australian, shamefully, who obviously did his killing in New Zealand. And he's now going to spend the rest of his life in prison. New Zealand has recently announced that uh, sentence, which is the first time anyone's ever done a life sentence in New Zealand. You normally get out with parole. In his manifesto, he talks about action on climate change. Now, again, I don't mean to elevate his words to some kind of beautiful prose. What I mean is he's arguing very much from the Nazi perspective, which is we have to love the environment, but the, his solution to protecting it is basically genocide. Mm. That's his solution. In other words, anyone who is defiling the environment, in his view, is obviously brown people, Muslims, you know, anyone who he doesn't define as okay. Now, I'm not saying Marine Le Pen's that extreme, but the, the danger is that the Marine Le Pen's of this world, if they're clever, will actually adopt a climate change agenda and they may potentially embrace renewables, etc. And that's relevant to the refugee question you asked before because I fear that many countries like France and others in Europe particularly, and for that matter, your country or your country, the UK and Ireland, should be careful how I say when you're in Northern Ireland, but in, in that in those two countries, um, will have and be able to define an increasingly harsh refugee policy that says, sure, as a country we may be deeply complicit in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya and Syria. Countries in the last 20 years have essentially collapsed. And sure, people are fleeing the wars that we helped either start or contributed to, but don't come to us. Don't run to us with your problems. It's exactly what Australia is saying as well. Australia is much further away and we're an island. So, of course, it's a bit different to the UK. Well, I guess the UK has its own issues as well, but there's a well, weird sense. we're not sense, as isolated. Right? You, you, you feel very far away. Exactly. It's the isolation. Exactly. Um, and 
you know, what worries me is that when you ask about what's the balance between who makes the decision to some extent about the, you know, the balance between a tight uh, immigration policy or essentially opening the floodgates to some extent as Germany did. And I was a big supporter of what Merkel did. I think Merkel could have done it much better. There a lot of problems with integration. I'm not saying integration as in there wasn't enough support. I spent time in Germany a few years ago. And a lot of refugees I spent time with were pretty pissed off, as locals were for that matter, that there hadn't been enough money given to help people arrive and settle in. But putting that issue aside, I think what Germany did was heroic. But it's hard to see any European government or Western government doing it any time again soon. And if you rest assured, that problem is going to be far, far if, if Europe thinks that the refugee crisis is bad now or has been bad because of the Syrian war, it's going to be nothing compared to the climate crisis, refugees. I mean, Syria had millions of refugees. Climate change potentially has tens of millions. I'm not saying they're all going to run to France or Germany. They probably won't. And, in fact, most people forget, although people on this podcast will maybe know, is most refugees in the world remain internally displaced. They don't jump on boats. They stay within their own country or neighbouring countries, Africa, wherever it may be. Um, they may want to go further afield, but they don't. And, yeah, so I guess I'm, I don't want to give the impression I'm this dour pessimist on everything. I'm actually not. But on the immigration issue I've seen for so long, the increasing, not just hardening of policy, but hardening of hearts around these questions and voices who oppose it are, well, I'm not saying you have to be the majority, but often aren't the ones choosing the policy, put it that way. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe we can move on to something slightly more, you know, positive. Um, but, you know, I don't think there's anything um, pessimistic about pointing out what could happen. I mean, you know, if you don't, if you don't decide to delineate where the current pattern of, of, of things go, then you just sort of aimlessly wander into a future that you're not understanding. So there's nothing wrong with, you know, making sure that people are, there's nothing pessimistic, I feel, even about, no, you're right. you know. I was being a bit facetious, but no, I mean, obviously a lot, a lot of my work, like as a person, I'm not particularly pessimistic, but my work is mostly investigating the darker sides of the world. But yes, I mean, it's, it's, I think these warnings and these realities need to be uncovered. Whether enough people just listen or care is another story. But, well, uh, that's a fair point. I mean, I wouldn't expect to get like thousands of listeners on this episode if that's what you're thinking. But yeah, um, no, it's all right. <laughs> we get we get enough. Um, so, yeah. what is the best example you have seen of of resistance to disaster capitalism? Like, what is the best? Um, either on a community level or like a national level, like where where has had the best? Yeah, I think the the term Naomi Klein uses is shock resistance. There's a number of different examples I would give to that. One, as I said before, in many countries in South and Latin America, there was resistance to privatizing water. Argentina is a good example um, of that. I haven't been there, so I can't speak with on the ground experience, but I've certainly read a lot about it. Um, there's obviously a lot of examples of, for example, um, many um, 
I guess, not just mayors of cities, but state governments and others pushing for much greater public transport. It might not be seen as a very sort of sexy issue, but there's obviously this does come down to the question of climate change again, right? This idea somehow that there should be, you know, more investment in roads or more investment in cars. And, yes, I, I don't, I'm not opposed to investment in public infrastructure. That should be public transport. And in a lot of cities in Europe I've seen, including uh, Barcelona, there's been a real push for that kind of greater infrastructure. How successful that's been, I guess people there have to assess. I haven't been to Barcelona for a long time. Hmm. Um, I do think there's also been... Go on. I was just going to say Barcelona has become um, quite heavily pedestrianised. They've got this this system going on where they've kind of like blocked off squares, Hmm. essentially, where cars can't go. Um, and it's increased the footfall. Is that working? Uh, it's increased like footfall in those areas and and uh, sort of profits for businesses who would have like previously been like by the street and now it's sort of a pedestrianized area. Right. Just get people like sort of walking about there more often. Um, and Luxembourg just became, I think, the first country to make all public transport totally free. I did not know that. Yeah, there well, you I go. support go, that. Go Luxembourg. Um, <laughs> Yeah, Luxembourg, I know. Well, that's uh, and they and they got so much money there. I guess they that's the least they can do. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, I know Barcelona's got a lot of problems too. Like, although not so much, I guess, this year because of COVID. But COVID will pass at some point. Just incredible, too many tourists going and just overrun with tourists and infrastructure can't handle it, etc. So, um, and also, I guess I've seen a real push for the ending of private prisons. I mean, just as an example. Um, just today, there was a debate between Kamala Harris and Mike Pence in the US for so the vice presidential debate. Oh, really? Which was most, yes, you missed that? Yeah. Um, it was the one and only debate, actually. You find all online if you want to watch every minute of it. It was pretty dire, but um, not <laughs> as bad as last week's with Trump and Biden. But um, one thing that Harris said, and I'm not really a big fan of hers at all, was she sort of said it in passing, but they pledged to abolish private prisons which I might add is the policy Bernie Sanders also had as well. Of course, he wasn't wasn't the candidate in the end. Wasn't That's he, actually quite... Have you seen their platform? Wasn't he really the candidate? <laughs> he got a lot of concessions. Yeah, he was. <laughs> yeah, not enough concessions, wow. I would say. But yes, um, that, that would... Now that, to get to that moment, to have not just Bernie, but obviously the official Democratic ticket pushing to end private prisons. Now, whether they do that, of course, if they win, we'll have to wait and see. That That is because of a movement. That's because of a movement of people in the US and around the world, but particularly the US, people of colour, etc., who are pushing for it. Now, obviously, if you close private prisons but massively increase public prisons, that's not a solution <laughs> either. Um, you know, it, I mean, the problem is, frankly, mass incarceration, whether it's in private or public spaces. But having spent time in some not as a inmate as a researcher in private prisons in the u.s and features in my book disaster capitalism as you know um these facilities are um horrific i mean you know it's been really disturbing the place i visit in the book stewart detention center which is in um georgia mm-hmm. just still opening still one of the biggest centres in the country. I think it houses, if I recall, about two, two and a half thousand people. I've been reading this year, a lot of people have been sent there, immigrants, dying of COVID. Really? Dying of COVID, absolutely. Um, So, 
Yeah. Uh, so I guess to answer that, yes, your question, the movement that's led to the talk of ending private prisons, and frankly that should be extended to private immigration facilities, is positive. Again, will it happen? What will it look like? We have to see the details of the small print, as we say. But that, to me, is an inspiring example of a movement's success. Now, obviously, success is actually happening, but happening in the policy. Um, and also, just finally, which is maybe not what you'd expect me to say, is the movement towards legalising cannabis. Now, that, okay. you could argue, is not directly disaster capitalism, but actually it kind of is in a way because my last book is talking about this issue. In the US, of course, it's almost certainly going to be legal federally at some point. It will be legal in the UK, not tomorrow, and it's hard to see it now. So it's moving in that direction. Yeah. Five years, ten I years, mean, it'll happen. I mean, they just, they, like in Belfast, I've just seen a sign for um, uh, a CBD coffee shop and okay. uh, there is just CBD and vape stores fucking everywhere. Like I, I was away for a few months there and came back and just some places maybe I hadn't been for a while and you just go down and just like, oh, CBD store, CBD store, CBD store. Right. Like, what, what's going it's on changing. here? Yeah. It's changing. So that's just, and the reason that's I say it's disaster game. capitalism is that the people who push for that, I can't speak so much for Northern Ireland, but in general, they're fighting against the system which is all about mass incarceration of people who usually are getting low-level drug offences and being often sent, although not only, to private prisons. That's more in the US, but for sure. So I do see that as challenging disaster capitalism and I see the fact that there is a move to legalise cannabis or at least to remove criminal penalties for personal use of all drugs. And I'm someone who advocates legalising and regulating all drugs from cannabis up. Mm. It's a long way away, I know, but Portugal you've got to start it. somewhere. They no, they've decriminalized, decriminalized not legalized. Yeah, it's still illegal. I mean, it's sort of a weird mix there in a way, just as an aside, because it's still illegal to get the drugs, even though it's the drugs are decriminalized. So, yeah, it's a bit of a halfway house. But, um, yeah, I mean, no other country in the world has really followed exactly the same as Portugal, which is bizarre. So there's some of the examples I would share. Hmm. What was it like being on the ground there? In the the, the story of um of that mine in in Papua New Guinea is is really um tragic, but but really like kind of inspiring that the people like they they basically what example I should have given of, of the best resistance. Thank you for thank you for reminding <laughs> me of that story. Yeah. That's right. Well, then, um, well, maybe, maybe you want to talk, talk about, about it. Minute, maybe you yeah. want to talk about yeah. it instead. But to me, it was just. It was truly inspiring to see, and and maybe this is not your impression of it, but this is what I got from from reading your book was that they they have been so damaged, and the 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 land that that is so important to them has been so damaged by by the mine, um, the gold and copper mine, I think it is, that that they they just the options are between for them it's like reopen the mine and continue to destroy the land beyond any sort of repair any sort of repair or continue to live in poverty and they they they, they're just happy to go you know what we'll take the poverty like you you can't like it's 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 this or it's worse because we're not going to see the money coming from the mine or they're very skeptical that they'll see any kind of benefit from it reopening and they've just kind of stood up and gone you know what we'll We'll build our communities without it, and we don't need it. And and 
and it's so rare that that actually happens. Uh, in well, that's probably the best example. And, and as I said, I'm glad that you mentioned that. Not that I'd forgotten it, but um, it is. So for people who don't know, very briefly, so Papua New Guinea, for those again who don't know, is a um, country to the north of Australia. It's a very poor country. It was an Australian sort of Australia owned it, so to speak. It was Australia sort of its its colony of sorts until the mid seventies. It's been independent ever since, but frankly, in reality, not really. Um, Australia still gives it about half a billion dollars a year. It's dysfunctional politically, very, very poor, and a lot of the world's largest mining companies are totally fucking that country up. And the, the mine you're talking about that features in the book and also the film of mine, Disaster Capitalism, is people can find it online. They can view it on various platforms if they're interested. Yeah, it's on Amazon Prime. It's 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 fantastic. Yes. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, is It was run by Rio Tinto, one of the world's biggest miners. It was in a place called Bougainville. It opened in the mid-70s, early 70s, I should say, or late 60s, I think. And um, it was, at the time, one of the world's biggest copper mines. And you have to imagine... A place, and of course I wasn't there back then. I was there twice in the last um, decade. It's now, I think I describe it like a scene from Mad Max, basically, that the people on that island resisted. They asked Rio Tinto to get more support, to get more respect. Rio Tinto basically told them to fuck off. I mean, I'm simplifying a longer conversation, of course. And the locals pick up, picked up, took up arms. And in those situations, normally it ends badly for the locals. Now, of a population of around 200,000 people, a good 20,000 probably died or were killed. So the, the human toll was extreme. That's a but lot of people. It's, I mean, it's unbelievable. And I might add Australia, of course, was on the wrong side of that fight, as they usually are. They were backing Rio Tinto, not the... Um, locals on Bougainville, but the mine shut down and the mine has not reopened ever since. It closed in the late 80s. And when you go there now, it's basically this, I've, I mean, I haven't been to that many mines in the world, um, but it is a, a hole in the ground of a size you can barely imagine. Essentially what's happened is Rio Tinto left the mine in a hurry in the late 80s with the expectation this little quabble with locals would be resolved. It never got resolved. So literally you have the jungle taking over the old mine. You have massive people move, um, sort of huge uh, mining equipment rusted and massive um, structures that have been kind of yeah, taken over by vines and it's just meant. And there's some people who are so poor living in the mine, even though right in the centre of the mine the water is polluted, people are being screwed over. So I guess the idea of showing that was, A, because most people don't know that story, even in Australia, not even though Australia is, is a neighbour of Papua New Guinea. B, most people around the world never heard of it, so that was probably a good reason to feature it. And three... To say now, Bougainville, since the book came out, has voted for independence. Um, the newest country in the world at the moment is South Sudan, which became independent around 10 years ago. No, Bougain- there's, there's West, in- West Togoland that they, they have declared independence oh, like last week. My friend told me it's like part of, it's a former part of Ghana. 
they've dec- and they've called themselves. Is that recognised by the UN? Um, I don't think so. I'm not sure actually. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. <laughs> but they, I mean, not that I'm saying I don't, I don't know anything about that issue. Maybe they have every right to their homeland. I have no idea about what you just said. But anyway, um, that there's they voted for independence, and now they have to convince the Papua New Guinea government to allow them to be independent. And the challenge is, what Papua New Guinea seems to be saying and Australia seems to be saying, oh, yeah, you guys can be independent as long as you reopen the dirty mine. And many locals that I know, and they feature in the book and the film, are saying, no, 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 no. This is not not the deal. Um, There are alternative ways, agriculture, tourism, potentially. I mean, tourism is dead now because of COVID, but, again, COVID, COVID will pass. Hopefully next year, fingers crossed. So, yeah, <laughs> we hope. Yeah. So, it's a really beautifully moving place to go, full of ghosts, full of incredible natural beauty, ghosts, and a lot of suffering. There's not so much violence these days, although Papua New Guinea has some of the worst domestic violence in the world. So, I'm not minimizing. I mean, there's no conflict per se there's just i mean yeah papua new guinea for lots of reasons has some of the um, highest rates of um, domestic violence rape against women just off the chart anyway which is a slightly separate issue well they're not unrelated to decades of trauma in a society which has been so fucked over and papua new guinea is really an example of a country like so many places are around the world that Western companies and countries see as nothing more than a money pit. The people there don't exist, meaning, I mean, they exist. They don't exist in the imagination of people who are exploiting the place. And for a country that's so resource-rich and people-rich to be so poor speaks volumes about what disaster capitalism is. And... I could have chosen 20 other examples around the world, of course, but I thought Bougainville was a good one for the reasons I just gave. Yeah, no, it's it's um, it's a really striking example. Like, like you said, I'd never like not I'd never read or or known anything really apart from, about Papua New Guinea apart from um, in uh, the intro to or not the intro, I think the first chapter of uh, This Changes Everything by Naomi Klein. She talks about. Um, Nauru, um, one of the islands, I think is... is yes, yeah, in the Pacific. Yeah. It's in the Pacific. It's not Papua New Guinea, but it's close. Ah, yeah. okay. I thought it was yeah. part of them. But yeah, that's that's really all I've yeah. heard about that. So it was it was really um, intriguing to or interesting to, to read about it. And, and like, a, yeah, like I said, a little bit inspiring to see that they've stood up mm. to, to, to some of the biggest companies in the world and, and kind of accepted uh, sort of temporary... Poverty. I don't know how long that 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 may last 10, 20, 30 years, but they've accepted that for now that they would rather, yeah, live like that than than accept more destruction and 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 yeah, just ecocide. I mean, they certainly just just. I mean, it goes without saying. I mean, they certainly would like to be richer. Oh, I mean, yeah, just yeah, to be clear, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting yeah, they, you know that you know they want to be you know or <laughs> driving around in Mercedes Benzes, or maybe they would. I don't know, but you know they want to. Have, I mean, you go there to Bougainville and which is going to make tourism bloody difficult, frankly, um, unless you're an adventure tourist. And I'm not saying it has to be five-star hotels, but most people want to have, you know, a comfortable hotel, right? I mean, that's to get anyway, and it doesn't that doesn't really exist there. So, I mean, it didn't really bother me, but I wasn't there as a tourist. Um, yeah. 
the infrastructure is just terrible. It's just, it said the war finished, you know, decades ago and everything just got stuck in time. Like, you know, you visit, you know, I, I say this in the book, it's in the film, you know, there's petrol stations that were burnt down 40 years ago and they're just still there, burnt out. I mean, it's like time stopped. Um, it's eerie and weird and beautiful and I've never been anywhere like it in my life. I didn't feel unsafe there really, but it's weird. Mm. Mm. So why do you think... And obviously a white guy stands out because everyone there is like... It's also a place where people are... Yeah, people's skin colour is uh, like jet black, amazing, like amazing faces and bodies. Mm. So why did... Why have, have we in the West failed to combat disaster capitalism and neoliberalism because it seems to me that like the, the trade-off that often happens in um developing nations especially is these big companies come in and they go hey you know you guys are are poor you want to be like us you want to be rich you know come up in this mine and but in the west we don't necessarily need to to, to accept that we've got a pretty high standard of living um, you know, we've got a, a lot because of the exploitation of people in those countries. Of course, yeah, that's why I stand. I'm not saying it's solely because of that, but it's partly. Yeah, but <laughs> but I mean that 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 probably doesn't factor into most people's um, decision making. Um, I agree, unfortunately. But um, or sort of, if the, it's maybe not even on the radar of of a lot of people that, that the reason that we are are no. rich is because you know we we did plunder um quite quite significantly well britain britain has a has a has a quite a, a long history yes of, uh, um, of doing that yes. yeah we, we yeah britain has been although i like to, i like to claim in northern ireland that i'm part of a I, i'm a part of a former colony so i'm uh, you know not part no not, no you're absolutely I'm not, right i'm not uh, one I, of the pillagers <laughs> point taken noted <laughs> <laughs> but yeah why do you think it is that we have have, have failed to kind of halt that the, the march of that ideology that's that's just uh, arguably just as as destructive and and sort of extractive and and uh, dehumanizing to 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 some people who get involved in it like why why have we accepted that as, as just as as readily as as other countries who who have you know at least the the financial incentive or the financial hopes for financial incentives i say there's a few reasons that i often think about i think the book discusses some of them it's one that there's kind of a sense i think that politically in many western countries although as i said not all there was a belief, mistakenly, that there should be real bipartisanship around certain key issues. So, for example, yes, when Thatcher instituted her policies, many in UK Labor opposed it, absolutely. But you fast forward 20, 30 years, and the UK Labor Party, I'm not saying they're the same as Thatcher, under someone like Blair, neoliberalism was... was normal in labor it was accepted now frankly quite supported but i would say i would slightly challenge your question though i'm not convinced and i think the polls and studies bear this out i don't think most people do accept it and what i mean by that is most people when you ask them and chomsky regularly talks about this mostly in the u.s but globally when you ask most people for example what their views are on public education decent healthcare system less wars, uh, smaller military, all these reasons. Now, obviously, there's some people who think we should have 
you know, more walls and no public education, sure. But it's a minority view. It's a minority view. Now, you could argue with justification, well, those who feel that way on the left haven't successfully enough got that argument on the agenda. And the reason, I think, amongst many, why, why someone like Corbyn was seen as such a profound threat, I'm not idealising him. I mean, I don't know him personally. I had issues with some things he did and said. But overall, I can't think of any... Western political leader, although in his case opposition leader, hmm. who came that close to power, and he wasn't going to radically change things, by the way. It's like if Bernie had a got in. I know he's called a sort of radical by the right. He's not a radical. I mean, Corbyn was more radical in inverted commas than Bernie, I think, is. Um, I don't think Corbyn would have been radical, but I think Corbyn would have done certain things, which is why he had to be destroyed. Done certain things meaning not supporting foreign interventions as much, hopefully not at all, massively cutting the military, massively increasing public education, um, strengthening the NHS, etc. Now, he lost an election last year bloody badly. There's no way to get around that, no. absolutely. And there's a range of reasons for that. Um, some of which the Labor fall, I think many were not. But nonetheless, we are where we Yeah. Uh, so would you like to finish up with, with something positive? Um, I mean, like, uh, you know, do you see lights at the end of the tunnel in our fight against disaster capitalism? Do you see resistance building in, in populations? Like, how optimistic are you for the future? I wouldn't say I'm wildly optimistic, but I'm not in the depths of despair. So does that make me sort of a, a fence-sitter? I don't, I don't like to see myself as a fence-sitter. No, what I do see is in many places around the world, this is not directly related to disaster capitalism, but in some ways it is, the gr growing global movement for racial justice is very much rooted in, amongst other things, in ending mass incarceration and disaster capitalism around private prisons and immigration. Now, that debate has not necessarily led to that many policy changes yet, and I think if Trump wins re-election, we are in for a very, I mean, not that it's going to directly affect me or you as much as it would an American, of course, but or someone, frankly, some poor fucker in the Middle East who's probably going to be bombed by Trump. But um, the idea of four more years of his administration is a deeply petrifying thought. Mm. And Well, there's no guarantee that they hold the Senate or the House um, or take back the House. So, I mean, you could be looking at Trump with a with a hostile Congress, in which case nothing will happen. True. Uh, yeah, that is possible. And, I mean, I think, yeah, I think four more years, I think if any hesitations were there in these four years, they'll be off in the coming four, if he wins. And that's in relation to um, possibly more foreign interventions, military strikes, immigration policy, which would just go from horrendous to, well, as I was saying to you before about, I mean, during the Trump years already there were, there were people on the American side shooting into the, onto the Mexican side. People might remember that. If they don't, they can Google it. No one was killed, but I see that stuff escalating very, very badly. So that's obviously pessimistic. But, yes, I do think there is a – I do think there's a growing movement to end, as I said before, things like private prisons, private immigration facilities, 
Um, I don't see, frankly, much pressure to end, for example, privatised war. I mean, I guess they're all connected in a way. I don't. In fact, in some ways, mercenaries are becoming far more used. I mean, the war in Libya is a good example of that, where you have mercenaries at the moment there from, you know, Turkey, Russia. It's a complete shit show amongst other countries, the US, mm. um, UAE, etc. Um I think it's a really mixed picture. I do think, though, finally, that the mass movement globally around climate change is unstoppable. Now, what that means is unclear. Mm. Again, Trump winning four more years on the climate issue alone is seeming is pretty petrifying. Biden, Harris winning for the next four years is not the Green New Deal probably was I personally would like, but probably something maybe half decent ish. I mean you can see my enthusiasm, can't you? Um yeah. half decent ish. I mean today, I mean Ooh. the debate today, Harris said, you know, no no no, we're not gonna end fracking. So look, I yeah. Well she she said that. Well she was asked. Well, well I think That's maybe if I recall, I can't remember the exact clip, but Pence basically said something like, you know, I think I think during when she was running for president, she said she would end fracking if she became president. That's not Biden's position. <laughs> so I think Pence said something like, well, you know, you said this, so you're going to end fracking. Said, no, no, no. Then afterwards, you know, I think they put out tweets saying, we pledge not to end fracking. It's like, okay, great, guys. Wonderful. Thank you for that. So, look, <laughs> uh, I think the Biden-Harris climate plan would be, pretty average but i tell you what it would be leaps and bounds better than the other guys so and the climate justice movement's only going to grow because the situation is worsening and worsening around the world so that does give me hope in many ways people who are much younger than you and me who are much more active on that issue i mean i write about it but i'm not as active about it um and i do think finally something like extinction extinction rebellion and with and it has problems not least too much being very much about often middle-class white people, but not solely, but often that's been a legitimate criticism of it. I do think that that sort of movement is really important and I support them. I don't mean to be dismissive of them. They're really important to break through on this vital issue. That's a criticism I think they would accept themselves. You know, there has been a criticism about who was involved in the luxury in some ways of particularly whites who can get arrested and don't have to worry about the problems associated with that, that someone maybe black or a person of colour wouldn't have that luxury. So there's issues around that. But putting that issue up, that's more of a tactical question. I do think groups like that are only going to increase and frankly get more extreme because the situation requires it. Um, and I don't have much faith that the British government and many Western governments are up to the task. I think there is pressure to reduce emissions and phase out fossil fuels, but I fear it's not going to happen fast enough. And this, of course, ultimately, I'll finish on this point, goes to the heart of the problem. What do you do about a existential problem that mainstream corporate politics, almost by definition, is not built to fix and is designed, in fact, to not fix? I'm not suggesting you call for revolution tomorrow, although that could be a good thing if it's done well. <laughs> but <laughs> it's a real question. And many people in the climate justice movement I know are thinking this exactly the same thing. Our politics is not built for this problem. It's just not. 
The idea of trying to get everyone around the table, for example, at a UN climate talk and agree on something like the Paris Accords. And yeah, I think it'd be good if Biden says he's going to rejoin the Paris Accords, but it's bloody weak. And it's frankly, a purely symbolic thing. Really. It is. And everyone kind of has a group hug and goes home. Now, is it better than not having anything? I guess. But that's not going to solve the problem, right? And I don't know the answer to that about global agreements. I'm not convinced you're going to get one, whatever that means. Like, what does a global agreement even mean? I mean, what, mm. what does that look like? Um, yeah, I mean, ultimately, of course, it's about, you You know, in some ways, it's about the US and China and their relationship now could not be worse. I think if Biden wins, it might change a bit, but let's see. Well, I, I, there's, there's two things I'll say on this just to finish. Is First of all, um, it is in China's complete best interest, like completely aside from any sort of moral or we don't want to destroy the environment um, or the, the planet or destabilize, destabilize um, the massive ecosystems. China is going to be seriously fucked if sea levels start to rise because so many of their huge productive cities are set underwater. to go underwater. Mm. Um, so it's completely in their financial incent- in financial yeah. best interest to deal with it. Um, and I think that there's at least a reasonable chance that, that, that money talks in that case for them, at least anyway. You know that just just because, like, ironically, they 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 tend they because of the like, and I'm not I'm not trying to back up China. Like, fuck them. They're horrendous. They're authoritarian. They're committing genocide, and no one seems to care. Mm. Um, but they because the, like because of the the nature of the dictatorship, they can kind of look at things on a much grander time scale than yes. the next four years, and yes. it gives them the ability to plan. So I'm actually like not that despairing about China's reaction to to. Or China's sort of dealing with climate change, and the thing that I'm I'm kind of coming very quick or rapidly to the conclusion of is that there is no global agreement coming. That there is only one. There's like the the the, the way to deal with it, and this is what I've been writing about in my in my second book that I'm I'm in the middle of writing, is that the person or the thing whose whose actions you can change more than anyone else's in the world is your own, and and the only way that you get a massive change is you start with people like really small individual little things. And if you, if you're saying, and you're looking around and going, you know what? I think we need to, we need to, I don't know, change the way we eat. We need to change the way we travel. It's like, you just got, you got to start with yourself, set an example and, and, and hope that that can improve the world because yeah, I think it's Jordan Peterson says every, every action you make is either pushing the world more towards goodness or more towards chaos. And, you know, choose, choose the good one cycle to, to work a few times a week i don't know grow some of your own food just like little tiny things like that start start something that that that, that can build and you know that's 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 my personal take on it i mean jordan, it Peter, jordan peterson's got some problems i don't anyway that's a whole separate story but um yeah i didn't i don't know that particular comment but yeah i mean i think also by the way a lot of american cities are gonna have problems being near the coast yeah, too well, i mean california right? and florida <laughs> just the whole state both of them uh yeah I mean, and so does Australia, for that matter. I mean, uh, we <laughs> yeah. are, I mean, much smaller country, of course. I mean, population is 25 million, so it's relatively small. But, I mean, Australia, as I'm sure listeners will be aware, has some of the, you know, we had bush, we call them bushfires, but, you know, crazy fires last summer for us, obviously northern winter, which were, you know, un- unprecedented. I mean, 
uh, it's only getting worse. So, yeah, I, hmm, on that cheery note. <laughs> yes. But, yeah, take, to, take some public transport, eat some, yes. some local food, um, do, do little things like that because it all, it all adds up very quickly. Indeed. Um, yeah. But yeah, Anthony, um, it's been a pleasure. I know you have to go. Um, so thanks for your Thank time. You. Pleasure. Um, thanks, yeah. Josh. It's been good to no chat. Problem. And people can yeah, find, you know, all my stuff online. They can Google. I've got websites and my books are available, the films. It's all Google yeah, my I'll name put, and it's, it's yeah, it's all, all there. Yeah. I'll link everything in, in the description and the, in the show notes. So um, if you want to just Thank send you. me anything. Okay. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this show, Please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. Until next time, thanks for listening.